Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 26th of July, 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us northern exposure from north of the border. Uh, well, we're going to get on with, with cases, first of all, and uh, cases in the United Kingdom are coming down, apparently. Uh, yesterday was the first time cases have uh, fallen below 30,000 since the uh, 6th of July, according to the government. Uh, and this is from the government's Corona dashboard on uh, on screen there. Uh, daily deaths uh, standing at uh, 28 today. That's up three from the same time last week. So, um, Brian, not too much going on, actually. There lots of cases being talked about, yeah. not very many hospitalizations uh, and uh, not very many deaths. Um, this is the fifth day in a row that uh, cases have come down, uh, as you can see on the graph there, just about on the far right. Uh, but this morning uh, on BBC Radio 4, of course, we had to get uh, somebody to talk about this. And it was uh, Dr. Mike uh, Tildesley from SAGE. Uh, and he said, the first thing before I start is it's good news. Let's not shy away from that. And then he started talking about caveats. Uh, and so he said, I think what we need to think about, though, is that there have been uh, a change recently, or sorry, there has been a change recently. And I think the big one is that in a lot of parts of the country, School has, schools have now closed for the summer. So the reason the number of cases is coming down is that schools have closed for the summer. And so because uh, schools have closed by the, for the summer, they're not doing their twice weekly uh, lateral flow tests, and therefore the cases are coming down. And uh, David, if I could just say welcome to the program. I'm glad to see that even SAGE is recognizing that this entire thing is being driven by testing and nothing else. Well, I, I love the phrase, let's not shy away from the good news. It, it sort of su suggests that there's a great reluctance to admit there's any good news. Well, they seem much happier uh, in the nature of uh, doom and gloom. Um, but we're, 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 we're going to be brave and we're going to look at the fact that, it, that there's good news. That's, that's uh, heartening. Um, but in the meantime, an article has appeared on Principia Scientific saying uh, World Health Organization PCR tests at high CT probably all false positive. Well, I think some of us have been saying that for a very long time. Yeah, and this this brings together uh, elements from uh, stories that have come out really since the turn of the year, as the World Health Organization have been slowly admitting um, that uh, there are problems with the testing. Uh, but Principia Scientific here summarizes the two arguments that completely demolish the claim that we have a public health emergency. Uh, item one, the cases have been used to declare the, the emergency are healthy people without any disease symptoms. And item two, the definition of the pandemic is based only uh, not only on cases, not based on science and adoption of this new definition in 2009 was done by elite individuals in an emergency committee without scrutiny of the scientific uh, medical and general community. Scientific definition requires a scrutiny of the community, otherwise it is an invalid under the scientific method. So they're pointing to essentially a conspiracy to change the definition of, of a pandemic uh, to by changing the definition of a case. Um, and then they go on to say World Health Organizations uh, admitted this is this is uh, some months ago that uh, any any um, PCR test above uh, 35 cycles is potentially 100% false positive. Uh, and then they, they question exactly what is happening in places like Australia, where the PCR test is running at a rate of 40 to 45. And most cases are people without symptoms. And we know that there's 
huge panic in, in Australia, vast government shutdown of society, and almost nobody, I mean, I think they've had one death in, in the last year, in, this, in 2021, uh, almost no one is, is seriously unwell. So it is very strange. Uh, and they're asking um, exactly what is going on, what cycles, what thresholds are in fact being used in Australia, and they're pointing out the lack of transparency. Um, and they, they conclude the cases, the disease uh, of, of the disease in the media is present uh, is presenting healthy people who have a PCR test but have no symptoms. It is these cases and healthy people that have been used to close borders and quarantine healthy people in Australia. So this is a, a good summary of exactly how you generate a pandemic, a worldwide scare, a worldwide shutdown, without there being anything actually you know, scientific, any, any real hard evidence to justify anything like this level of response. Um, so that brings us on then to the Centres for Disease Control. And this is uh, going, uh, doing the rounds at the moment. And many people are actually misinterpreting this release from the CDC uh, because it says lab alert changes to CDC RT-PCR for SARS-CoV-2 testing. Um, and uh, it says uh, that basically after December the 31st, 2021, the CDC will withdraw, let's just uh, zoom this zoom in on this a little bit, CDC will withdraw the request to the US Food and Drug Administration for emergency use authorization of the CDC 2019 novel coronavirus real-time PCR diagnostic panel, the assay first introduced in February 2020 for detection of SARS-CoV-2 only. But here's the thing, it goes on to say CDC is providing this advance notice for clinical laboratories to have adequate time to select and implement one of the many FDA author authorized alternatives. So uh, people have interpreted this to mean that uh, the CDC is effectively getting rid of PCR on the 31st of December, but this is not the case because if we read on, uh, it says in preparation for this change, CDC recommends clinical laboratories and testing sites that have been using the CDC 2019 RT-PCR assay, uh, select and begin their transition to another FDA-authorized COVID-19 test. CDC encourages laboratories to consider adoption of a multiplexed method that can, provide, uh, that can facilitate detection and differentiation of SARS-CoV-2 and influenza viruses. That's what this is about. This is not about getting rid of PCR. It's actually about expanding the use of PCR, routine PCR testing, to not only include COVID-19, but also to include influenza A and B. So let's have a look at uh, their uh, page on this. They uh, have a page called CDC Diagnostic Test for COVID-19, and there's two on there. There's the one that they are getting rid of at the end of the year, and there's the one that's on screen at the moment, which is CDC Influenza SARS-CoV-2 Multiplex Assay. Um, and so if we look at the instructions for use of this assay, uh, and we look at what it says, the influenza SARS-CoV-2 flu SC2 in brackets multiplex assay is a real-time RT-PCR multiplex test intended for the simultaneous qualitative detection and differentiation of SARS-CoV-2, influenza A virus and or influenza B virus nucleic acid in upper or lower respiratory specimens uh, such as uh, nasopharyngeal uh, swabs and so on. Uh, okay, so I uh, just wanted to make that clear. This is not about getting rid of PCR. It is about expanding the case-demic that we have at the moment to expand it beyond COVID-19 and to include influenza A and B because influenza A and B, as we know, 
ceased to exist in week 13 of 2020. Uh, it hasn't existed until, until now, uh, according to the official statistics, but we are getting ready for it to exist uh, this coming winter. Um, and in order to prepare for that, we've got to have the right tests in place. So David, I hope that uh, clarifies that. Well, does it clarify the number of cycles in the PCR test that they require to use? Uh, no, it doesn't. But it, what it does do is suggest, and I would, doesn't comment about the number of cycles at all, but it certainly suggests uh, that uh, we are going to see the same kind of false positive levels uh, being applied to other viruses. Well, in that case, all you need is enough testing, and you can have a vi you can have a, a pandemic in anything you care to name. Uh, that is indeed the nature of PCR. Uh, certainly seemed the na nature of the game as well. Well, our audience is uh, often after good news from the UK column. And I'd just like to say that good news for us is that over the last few weeks, we've been contacted by a number of um, international scientists who want to speak to us on the subject of uh, COVID-19 and the vaccination programme. We've been able to do some of those interviews. There's more to come. And uh, Mike's also got more good news with doctors for ethics today. Um, but we've got here a very short little video clip with two of the experts speaking, Anne-Marie Yim and uh, Harvey Seligman, talking about matters to do with COVID-19 and vaccines. And then Dr. Seligman moves on to data around his research in uh, Israel. So let's have a look at the clip. So there's a, a strong correlation between vaccination and variants apparitions. And uh, Professor Luc Montagnier, he said that the vaccination creates the apparition of variants. It creates mutations, like four or five mutations on the S1 subunits of the S protein. So S protein of two subunits, S1 and S2. And um, uh, there's mutation, four or five mutations on the S1 protein subunit where on the RBD domain, where the, the protein binds actually to the to the ACE2 receptor. So what, what he says is like, you create this immune escape. So he, he refers this immune escape. Some, some scientists agree and some scientists don't agree. I agree with him. Vaccine is selecting for, for viruses where there is a mutation that is not covered meaning that escapes the protection of the vaccine. That's in a way, and that's the idea of uh, Geert van den Boske, and it's more or less what, um, or exactly what uh, Anne-Marie said. So I found that in Israel, the, there is an increase in deaths from COVID for, that is age specific for people between ages 30 to 70 and not below and not above. So I thought this could be something that would say, okay, it's not the vaccine escape hypothesis of Van den Bosch because it is age specific. So it would be something that has, uh, that is physiological and not genetic. The hypothesis of Van den Bosch is a hypothesis that says there is a genetic reaction. So that's what I thought, but after a while, that's what happens now. The 
there seems to be vaccine escape because we have suddenly an increase in uh, people who got infected in Israel. The graph that you see is the frequency, the daily frequency of positive COVID-19 tests after the first shot. So the, what, the, let's say the first triangle that you see, that is the start of the horizontal line, that's how many people got sick the first day they got the shot. It's uh, the, the bottom line uh, level of uh, COVID-19 uh, incidence in Israel for this population. And each day after the shot, the first shot, you see that this incidence increased. Within eight, nine days, it reached approximately three times the initial rate. And then it declined slowly towards day 21, the day of the second shot. So that during these 21 days, you had an, an, inc an increased incidence of uh, getting sick. And this is only for COVID-19, but it probably reflects a general uh, decrease in, uh, in the strength, meaning uh, uh, an increased fragility of the, um, of the immune system. So it would probably affect also any other disease. Then you have a stagnation at the, at the baseline for seven days, meaning until day 28 after the first shot, meaning after seven days after the second shot, and then kicks in the, the phase where the vaccine is protecting you. So the incidence of uh, positive cases is decreasing. And basically when I talked about an increase in, um, in the, you, as you see, first you have to go through one month of more, of being more frail and, and of being less protected than the non-vaccinated people before you reach a period where you are vaccinated, where you have a protection from the, from the vaccine. Um, so, as Amory Yim said in the uh, in the video, there is still much discussion between scientists on exactly what is happening. Uh, we're giving a platform to scientists who want to speak out because they don't believe the official narrative. But uh, David, you were particularly interested in three graphs that uh, Dr. Seligman commented on. The first being the one he's just shown. Yes, to start with that graph, this is very significant, and and it, it's the sort of data that people like the, our own MHRA should be communicating to the public. The, the government should be communicating to the public, and that's not happening. So the implication of this is that not only are you at greater risk of all disease for 21 days after receiving the first COVID vaccine shot because of the suppression of your immune system, but that would mean that if you are um, vulnerable or you're looking to avoid contact with people or you're looking to avoid picking up anything, you would need to start that one to two weeks before um, the, 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 the vaccine shot and carry it on for maybe three weeks after so that when you get the shot, you're not sort of carrying something that your immune system is dealing with and then your immune system is suppressed and, and the disease takes hold. So this is something that... that is, I mean, you're talking a threefold increase in vulnerability here to, to COVID. This is very significant. 
And of course, it's not been discussed, it's not been communicated by the MHRA, by the NHS, by the, by the British government, the Scottish government, anybody else. Uh, it, it's, uh, we are relying on, on scientists doing independent work and then struggling to get that recognised and discussed internationally. Okay, thank you for that. And of course, the second one that you were interested in is uh, this graph, which is actually indicating the rise of variants post-vaccination. Uh, yes, this, this one struck me very strongly because the, you, you see there's a, there's a gentle rise in, in the number of variants, and then there's a sudden inflection point. And, and when is the sudden inflection point? Late December 2020, that's exactly when the vaccine was rolled out. So that's hard data that, that confirms the hypothesis that the that vaccination, not lack of vaccination, but the actual vaccination programme is driving the development of, of the variants, the variants of concern um, of, of things that may well escape um, uh, protection, be it natural or, 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 or via a vaccine. It's been driven by the vaccine programme itself. Now, that is the, the exact reverse of what politicians, um, medics on the state payroll, etc., are telling us. But the hard data shows it extremely clearly. Okay, thank you for that. And the, sorry, the third one in the sequence is this one, vaccination increases COVID-19 mortality versus unvaccinated. Yeah, people might want to um, freeze the screen and actually have a, a good look at this table. But the the bottom line is that the this was presented with headline figures that made it look as though vaccination was hugely successful in reducing the effect of COVID-19 and protecting people. But when you looked at the actual data and analysed it properly and looked at the number of people in the various groups and the length of time they were monitored for, the actual story was the exact reverse. It showed that people were at greater risk having been vaccinated than the unvaccinated. Um, this sort of data manipulation is extremely worrying because this is simply lying to people. It'll be picked up by the mainstream media because it, it satisfies the, the narrative they are looking to, to put forward and it will be spread to the, to the public who will believe it. And it's a lie. Okay, David, thank you for that. Now, just to add a little bit more, um, Dr. Seligman had been particularly focusing on risks to children, which we can't cover in detail in this news, uh, but he'd made some updates over the last few days, which I just wanted to make sure we had covered. He would like us to do that. Uh, so this one, he said, the effect of adult vaccination on children and mortality, the death of children, disappears 18 weeks after the first dose. This was work where he was looking at children dying, uh, and this appeared to be linked to adult vaccination. The second point from Veer's data, the American data, the direct effect of vaccination on deaths disappears also after the 18th week. Now, remember, he's, he's, um, he's qualifying earlier statements. We just want to make sure we're being accurate here. And then three, in Israel, about as many vaccinated as unvaccinated uh, are found in, amongst the daily cases of those hospitalised. Now, he's also uh, updated his work, which he does every three, <coughs> excuse me, three weeks. Um, so I've just taken a little bit of, uh, of um, 
an excerpt here, hospitalizations in June, July increased three times faster for the vaccinated than the unvaccinated. And he's talking about Israel here. He's talking about Israel, yeah. yeah. Hence for June, July, 2021, vaccination does not prevent infections. This might be because vaccination does not protect against new variants. The more likely alternative is that vaccine protection disappears after three to six months. These hypotheses are not mutually exclusive. Observations that hospitalizations increased faster for the vaccinated than the unvaccinated in the June, July matches previous results of re-analysis re of data from the Israeli Health Minister, Ministry, March 11, 2021. Vaccinated COVID-19 much more likely to die of illness due to a weakened immune system and uh, source given there. And uh, this one, indeed, the, those infected despite vaccination are more likely to develop more serious symptoms than the unvaccinated, including being hospitalized and dying. At this point, vaccination does not decrease infection rates and increases risks of serious cases. So this is some pretty serious analysis. Uh, as I said earlier, we're giving these scientists the opportunity to speak out with the warnings that they're making. Uh, we've got more interviews to come, including with the former head of French vaccine policy, uh, Dr. Per, uh, Professor Perron. David. Yeah, just to emphasize this this point uh, that uh, Harvey Seligman was making on children, uh, this was uh, generated from his analysis of a huge uh, pool of data from all across Europe, uh, including the UK and Israel. Um, and he was finding that uh, as the vaccine program rolled out, in most age groups, there was an initial harm caused as the immune system was suppressed and and, and death rates, he's looking at all-cause mortality, uh, death rates went up and then there would be a reduction in, in a period where uh, the, the, the vaccine would be beneficial. Um, and the one group that wasn't included, included in this was children, children who had not been vaccinated because they're too young for the vaccination programmes. They were showing an increase in mortality stretching out, as he says, there, 18 weeks. And the increase was something like 10% of, of all-cause mortality. So significant um, and very worrying and not fully explained. He, he suggests a few reasons why this might occur, but the, the, the causal link is not, is not known. Um, there may be more than one, but the statistical uh, signature of this is very pronounced. Okay, David, thank you very much for that. Okay, uh, let's move on then, because uh, of course this uh, whole anti-vax movement is in fact uh, Russian supported and Russian driven. Uh, that is, if you believe the BBC. Um, so the headline uh, yesterday was uh, the YouTubers who blew the whistle on an anti-vax plot. Uh, and they're saying a mysterious marketing agency secretly offered to pay social media stars uh, to spread disinformation about COVID-19 vaccines. Their plan failed when the influencers went public about the attempt to recruit them. Uh, it started with an email, says uh, one German YouTuber. Uh, and uh, he normally ignores offers from brands asking him to advertise their products, says the BBC, uh, to his 1.5 million subscribers. Uh, but the sponsorship offer he received in May was unlike any other. Uh, so they say an influencer marketing agency called Faza uh, was, uh, had offered to pay him to promote what he said was leaked information that suggested the death rate amongst people who had the Pfizer vaccine was almost three times that 
of the AstraZeneca jab. Well, actually, if you look at the MHRA yellow card statistics, and uh, the latest data is on the yellowcard.ukcolumn.org website, um, if you look at that carefully, you'll see that for those that had an adverse reaction, so I'm not talking about everybody vaccinated, but for those that had an adverse reaction, it is probably three times more likely that you're going to, that result is going to result in death based on those statistics if you had Pfizer over AstraZeneca, but that's beside the point. Uh, let's move on because here is uh, one of the uh, social media influencers, the German, uh, Mirko. Uh, he was offered money to spread disinformation on his social media accounts, says the BBC. Um, and here's another one, a French gentleman called uh, Leo Grasse, who was horrified by the attempt to recruit him. Um, so, uh, so that's so. Who is it that was pushing this? Well, it's this organisation here, Fazi or Fazi. Uh, start monetizing your individuality, and you can click on a box and a on a button that says I'm a blogger, and you can click on a button that says I'm an advertiser, and you can get together. It's all fantastic stuff. Um, this, however, was originally pushed out by the Guardian and others, and quite a number of other mainstream news programs, uh, pro, uh, platforms in May. So. First question is, why has the BBC decided to carry this now? I'm not entirely clear. Uh, this is uh, The Guardian from May. Influencers say Russian-linked PR agency asked them to, to, to disparage Pfizer vaccine. Um, and here's the uh, France 24 coverage. France hit by mystery campaign to discredit Pfizer. Um, now, the main organization that put out details on who's behind this alleged plot uh, was uh, this one, uh, Radio Free Europe. Now, anybody that's any doubt about what this organization is, they began their career CIA-backed. They are absolutely backed by Western uh, uh, governments, uh, and they push out an anti-Russian narrative. This is, uh, I'm going to say, very similar to what might otherwise be termed an integrity initiative uh, exercise, as, we're say, as we'll see. So this was an exclusive in Radio Free Europe. Meet the murky Russian network behind an anti-Pfizer disinformation drive in Europe. And again, this was published in March. Um, and what the uh, article says is, however, after all their various tenuous links between people, they have to admit, though no evidence has turned up suggesting the involvement of Russian public entities or government officials or agencies in the social media campaign. The effort has echoes of other PR efforts conducted by RDIF. Now, RDIF is the Russian Direct Investment Fund. It's a sovereign wealth fund. Um, and uh, they are claiming some kind of echo. I don't know where the echo has come from, but they're claiming some kind of echo as the basis for the entire uh, um, claim here that it was the Russians. Uh, so David, I don't know what you think of that, but uh, um, are you Russian backed? No, but uh, the BBC is an echo chamber, so maybe maybe they were attracted by the use of the word echo. Yeah, it may well be. Now, just uh, so that you know, um, the uh, Radio Free Europe uh, is funded by Western governments. Uh, their annual budget is $124 million. So that's the kind of uh, output you get from a $124 million per year funded organisation. <laughs> Yes, I, I find I find the lack of value in the propaganda world quite remarkable. Uh, yes, indeed. Where does that take us? Almost, uh, it's, 
almost as if they're not really very good at it, not yeah. very competent. Well, if you live in a world of lies, it's difficult to know where to start once you get into work, I presume. Um, but uh, David, the Mail uh, yesterday or today had this article, who are the people dying of COVID now? There's a totally new kind of patient, says doctors, in their 40s, previously well, but unvaccinated. Yeah, now I've got a couple examples of this in the UK. America is is just a, just awash with articles like this, some of them extremely vicious. This is a PR campaign. Now, what the Mail goes on to say is, and this is completely unrelated to the headline, perhaps the most worrying was the latest Public Health England data showing that more vaccinated people, on average, are dying from the disease compared to those who are unjabbed. Is something going wrong? How much risk uh, are we at despite uh, having had our jabs? So they are, they are doing now a hit piece on Public Health England's own data that says more people who are who are vaccinated are dying from COVID than people who are unvaccinated and dying from COVID, which, at least on the surface of it, is a statistic that warrants further investigation. So what does the mail do? It doesn't investigate the statistics. It doesn't look at the data. It doesn't do any of those. It trots off to find anecdotal evidence to contradict the data that they have just announced. Right. Um, so they then go on to... Uh, I've got a, a couple of examples in a long article with lots of examples. Uh, they talk about 35-year-old Carla Hodges from Hertfordshire, whose stepfather, uh, Leslie Lawrenson, died age 58 in early July, having contracted the virus weeks earlier. Uh, Leslie, a solicitor, had no underlying health conditions, uh, but didn't have his vaccine because he believed he didn't need it. It's all done in this sort of tone. Uh, he was convinced because he was healthy without any problems. He, he would, it would be too bad for him, says Carla, an account manager. He didn't realise how sick he was. One minute he felt like he had a bad flu and was sitting up in bed working. The next minute he'd passed away in his bed. So we've got a series of, of individual anecdotes to make you believe that the data that they have just announced, which is true, that more people are dying from COVID if they're vaccinated than, the, than are dying from COVID if they're not vaccinated, in accordance with the Public Health England stats, um, to make you believe that that's not true. Uh, it's a bizarre article. They're saying we're going to investigate this statistic and then they simply go and look, find anecdote after anecdote to refute the statistic, even though they admit the statistic is true. Uh, David, if I just come in very quickly, um, I'm just fascinated by this story. But of course, what the Daily Mail is doing is using applied psychology, it's using the emotional text in the article to try and counter factual data information from Public Health England. This is applied psychology, it's nudging, and the Daily Mail absolutely knows that what it's doing here is trying to manipulate people's minds without most of them realising what's happening. Um, David, uh, we're already running behind time, but uh, let's uh, move on. Uh, daily COVID deaths in Sweden hit zero uh, as other nations brace for more lockdowns. Well, Sweden continues to be the um, the, the nation that dare not speak its name at the moment because um, the, the Guardian told us that it was a catastrophe, a catastrophe in the making. Uh, the, the fact that Sweden wasn't locking down, this was just going to be horrendous. And now they've got no 
deaths and they're pretty much open for business and tourists are going there. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's fallen to the Foundation for Economic Education to report on this. Um, they're, they're talking about uh, a seven-day rolling average for COVID deaths was zero. Nada, nothing. It's been zero for a week. And they conclude, as much of the world remains gripped in fear and nations devise new restrictions to curtail basic freedoms, Sweden remains a vital and shining reminder that there is a better way. And of course, you don't get that sort of reporting in the mainstream media. Uh, no, and we've got a tweet here from uh, John uh, Miltimore, uh, basically saying the same thing. Yeah, they're talking about how how um, this is a Guardian um, piece there. How uh, Sweden becomes an example of how not to handle COVID nineteen and how how terrible it's going to be, and uh, yet they are at zero deaths. Uh, but in the meantime, around the world, uh, extensions of lockdowns. <laughs> Yes, here we, uh, we go to Straits Times uh, uh, from Singapore. Indonesia extends COVID-19 lockdown set, uh, uh, set to ramp up contact tracing. And I love here they've picked a, a, a photograph of a funeral. And not only uh, the pallbearers in hazmat suits, um, but uh, the, the uh, coffin is wrapped in tarpaulin because that's just how dangerous uh, this all is. Um, and they, they go on to explain that um, we're going to have non-essential workers restricted. Um, they're going to be forced to work from home. Uh, we're going to have centralised quarantine facilities. And they say we want to make each uh, centralised isolation location uh, to have ample medical equipment, doctors and nurses and food. Otherwise, people do not want to come. Uh, the military chief was quoted as saying, so we're running out the military. The military are now running the, um, the the delivery of medical services because it's that bad a crisis. That's the the way the message that's been put forward by the Indonesian government. It's all one of panic, of extreme measures, of unusual measures, of lockdown restrictions and liberty, and it's necessary because of the terrible risk of COVID. Meanwhile, in Sweden, they're busy proving that this is not so. Indeed. Now, coming back to the UK then, uh, at the weekend, uh, of course, there was uh, a demonstration in London. It was held in Trafalgar Square, a number of speakers uh, speaking at that. I have to say that uh, the feedback that we've had uh, about the day so far has been mixed. Uh, some people thought it was very good. Some people didn't uh, think it was so good as well. And I think the main problem with, with the people that didn't enjoy it quite so much or didn't think it was quite so effective uh, was that uh, they felt that you know, having a group of people speaking on a stage, uh, talking to an audience wasn't as effective as uh, actually them walking with the audience uh, through the through the, the streets of London and making, you know, as a, as a, a unified statement, making that statement absolutely clear. Um, so uh, that took place, uh, a number of people speaking, uh, but of course, well, we'll, as we'll see in one second, uh, the BBC um, didn't manage to cover it on Saturday, but they did manage to attack uh, some of the speakers. Um, so, any thoughts? Well, I, th I think there's more discussion to be had on the day. And yeah, what more can we say? We've had both opinions. We've had people that really enjoyed it and got a lot out of being with other like-minded people. And some people said, well, we weren't so keen because it, it, was, it was sort of all about the uh, view from the stage and not about the opinion of the people attending. So we weren't there. We're going to have a deeper look at the comments from you. Uh, and uh, as I say, the BBC, of course, attacking 
uh, people uh, that were speaking, but <laughs> what they didn't do was report it on the day. And in fact, uh, London, BBC London, this was their only report of it on the day, uh, that there was se severe disruption on the A40 London westbound, uh, queues on the A40 Oxford Street westbound uh, in the West End around Marble Arch Junction because of a temporary closure and a demonstration. And that was the height of uh, what they said. Yeah, well, UK Column did put out a tweet. This one, great to see many awake, concerned people meeting and speaking out. Millions more needed across UK to counter this vicious uh, dictatorship installing itself, now hidden in plain sight at all levels of UK government. And a little uh, video clip from Rupley was included. So that had 940 retweets, which was nice to see, and 2,000 likes. Uh, but the video didn't stay for long because people were soon telling me it was unavailable because it had apparently been taken down. We don't know the reason for that. Mm. Uh, indeed. Now, uh, David, how did a woman's legs help anti-vax rumours run wild? Well, we spoke uh, just a moment ago about how uh, the male was using anecdotal evidence to make you believe that the real statistics uh, were in fact um, not real at all. Well, here the, the Times is actually pulling the reverse trick. So this young lady you see here um, received a COVID vaccine and was uh, very severely injured by it and was um, left partially paralyzed, at least temporarily, and uh, had great difficulty in walking. Um, she put out an Instagram video about her symptoms. So the Times reports here, uh, Georgia Rose Siegel is uh, seen struggling to walk. She enters a kitchen and almost collapses, uh, grasping a surface for support as her legs spasm. A male voice asks if she's okay. Her, uh, her three dogs dart out of the way. A second clip shows her feet twitching in a hospital bed. Quote, since the 29th June after her second Pfizer jab, Georgia has had daily episodes of fainting, developing into neurological issues and losing the use of her legs, the caption reads. And yes, she was perfectly fit and healthy before. So the Times then goes into a long piece about how COVID vaccines are really a net benefit and you shouldn't worry about this. And then towards the end says, yes, it, it, the story is correct. Um, she was um, she was the subject of a vaccine injury, and the description of her um, uh, symptoms is accurate. So it's it's kind of done in the tone of you know here's this story and it's kind of scurrilous and it's leading people not to be vaccinated and it's therefore wrong and it's it's very it's very troubling. And they go to the social media company Instagram and put it out and say, well we're, we're leaving it up because. It's true, uh, but we're we're now kind of de-emphasizing it, so it's harder to find because we are part of a huge campaign to promote the vaccine. So the the whole piece is yes, here's some anecdotal evidence that is true of people being injured, but we don't want you to to look at that. We want you to think about other things. Um, so it's the other half of the Daily Mail article, really, uh, and quite striking. Now, um, what would be Obviously, beneficial is if you had um, both anecdotal um, stories and um, detailed analytical looks at the statistics, both saying the same thing, and then we could be confident that the message we're putting forward is accurate. This is the line that the UK column tries to take, but it's not one that the Times and the Mail seem to be following in this instance. Uh, absolutely correct, David. So let's just have a very quick look at how the mail dealt with it. This was their headline, government push 
to force young people to get jabs risks undermining trust in the vaccine, expert warns. As video of women struggling to walk after getting Pfizer is linked, is sorry, is liked 100,000 times on Instagram. So we're now beginning to see what's uh, really going on here. Uh, this is the clip which I think we can animate on screen. So this is what was shared and got them extremely worried. Um, it's tragic when we look at this because this reminds me of Nicola's husband that we reported on earlier. And we were barred from YouTube for showing the clip. Now this one is factually correct and stays up. So this is the male report and they're worried. Recent uh, recent figures, that's not my mistake there, recent figures have revealed that while infections among young adults have soared to a record high, vaccine uptake has slowed to a fraction of what it was in the spring. One in three 18 to 29 year olds has still not had a first dose of COVID-19 vaccine. So there's panic here that the young are not taking up the vaccine. And in the article was comment from Professor Adam Finn, which I found very interesting. If people begin to feel uh, they are being kind of forced against their will to do something, then in a sense, that's quite damaging thing to do because it gives people the impression that vaccination is something being imposed on them. Uh, he goes on, nudging the use of applied uh, behavioral psychology for political purposes is what he means by nudging. Nudging can be done, but it has to be done in a way that people don't feel they're being pushed into something they don't want to. Well, we're going to comment on that. Where's the evidence to, uh, I'm sorry, sorry, I've moved on to this second one. Young people are getting seriously ill from coronavirus, and I urge them to have their jabs. Well, where is the documentary evidence to support his claim about all these young people getting seriously ill? And this one here, um, there have been close to 200 admissions with an average age of 40. He's talking about Bristol during the current wave caused by the spread of the Delta or Indian variant. We've had people under 30 on our intensive care unit and also requiring high level oxygen therapy. So what Professor Finn is doing here is using fear as a tool to nudge people, young people, into having a vaccine. I, I find this very offensive because, of course, the reader unless they have some knowledge of the use of psychology, does not know what's, what's actually happening. But we just remind people that the Daily Mail picked up on the UK Columns report of Nicola's husband. Uh, this was her comment on her husband paralysed from the neck down with Guillain-Barre syndrome. He's still on the ventilator and has been suffering from hallucinations and infections. When they were planning for this vaccination programme, why didn't they put any severe side effects to look out for when they knew what was coming. Well, they didn't do that, Nicola, because they didn't want the population to be alerted uh, as to the true risks so that they could make a properly informed decision. Um, now, on Friday's programme, we mentioned the BBC's uh, coverage of uh, the self-isolation situation, the so-called pandemic. And we made the point that the BBC had highlighted uh, empty shelves uh, and one particular image that you're about to see uh, of empty shelves with people apparently in winter coats and bearing in mind it was uh, over 30 degrees uh, last week we wondered um, how they could possibly have got this uh, picture um, so let's just remind ourselves of the image this is it uh, the guy here uh, looking at the empty shelves in a fleece jacket uh, and the people in the background there with their winter coats on um, so we were calling this out as fake news really from the BBC well we now know where the uh, article 
uh, where this image came from. But before we get to it, we'll just mention that Reuters also were pulling the same gag uh, with an article, food supply, UK food supply chain on, chains on the edge of failing, meat industry warns. Uh, that was from uh, last week, that article. Um, and uh, anyway, uh, this is the original article. Um, I'm sorry, I've uh, covered over the, the headline, so you're not going to be able to see that. I haven't animated this properly. But anyway, there's the image on the original article. If you look at the date, uh, it's March the 24th, 2020 on that article. Uh, and if we uh, just zoom up the date so you can see that. Uh, but if we look at the image itself, and if you look at the caption on that image from the older article, it says, a man stands next to shelves empty of fresh meat in a supermarket as the number of worldwide coronavirus cases continues to grow in London, Britain, March the 15th, 2020. So that's where that image came from. Uh, the BBC was trying to imply that it was empty shelves we were witnessing uh, because of the current uh, supply chain problems. Um, but again, the BBC seems to be caught out uh, in not quite uh, being honest about uh, what is actually going on in supermarkets. They didn't, with their four billion pound budget, actually manage to send somebody out just to take some Excuse new me. video footage. Um, so uh, there you go. That's where the image came from. Um, and uh, well, thank you very much to the person who uh, pointed that out to me. That was very helpful. Could we just add to that, Mike? We do know from people reporting to us from around the country, there have been some um, very small shortages in uh, food supplies and deliveries to local um, supermarkets. We know that's happening. We know there are shortages with other materials, particularly in the building trade. Um, but uh, factual reporting is factual reporting. Yes, and uh, not as the BBC certainly <laughs> devoid of that at the moment. Uh, yeah. David, very briefly, please. Just wonder whether they're trying to generate a bit of a scare because, of course, um, if you manage to get a bit of panic buying going, you'll create the very shortage that they're reporting on. Um, they perhaps consider that as a possibility. Uh, this is a very good point. Now, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. That's very much needed and would be very much appreciated. Also, do share material that you find on the platforms, uh, including brand YouTube, Rumble, BitChute, uh, Twitter and Facebook. Um, and uh, Brian. Well, if you um, need to, if you still haven't seen the scientists talking to UK column, it's in two parts, No Smoke Without Fire, front page of the UK column, part one here, um, part two down there. So that's uh, Dr. Anne-Marie Yim and Dr. Harvey Seligman. If you watch those two clips, you'll start to understand the information that's coming into us now. And I'll just add, we know that there are many people saying we're not yet covering a number of issues to do with viruses and vaccines. That is true at the moment. We are um, producing information to counter the narrative that's coming out from the government. And we know there's a lot more information about uh, viruses, how they uh, work or don't work, and the same for vaccines. Okay, I'd like to, uh, I'm delighted to say that we are uh, going to be running the Doctors for COVID Ethics Conference this week. Uh, this is, uh, uh, the conference is planned to be called uh, Gold Standard COVID Science and Practice Inter Interdisciplinary Symposium, a call for immediate interventions. It's organized by Doctors for COVID Ethics and it'll be hosted by the UK Column. So it'll be on the UK Column's uh, live stream, which is uh, ukcolumn.org forward slash live. Uh, on Thursday and Friday this week between 5 and 10 p.m. on both those days. 
Um, it's going to have uh, presentations or uh, panels, uh, including contributions from uh, Professor Sukharit Bhakti, uh, Professor Michael Palmer, Associate Professor Michael Palmer, Wolfgang Wodarg, Catherine Austin Fitz will be taking part as well, Mike Eden taking part as well, amongst others. Uh, this is going to be uh, a fantastic uh, two days, I think. Yeah, and I think we should say, Mike, we really appreciate the confidence that these people are showing to come to the UK column to get their message out. Um, we'll move from that positive to just a little bit more on the BBC, another screaming headline. COVID is UK now a breeding ground for new variants? Well, we've started to hear what Dr. Harvey Sligman has been saying as one example, but uh, what was the statement? Scientists have warned that the UK column, <laughs> beg your pardon, scientists have warned that the UK has created the perfect conditions by relaxing restrictions, which could see cases reaching 100,000 a day this summer, while large numbers of people don't have protection from both doses of the vaccine. And there's the picture. If you want to go clubbing, get yourself vaccinated. Uh, but it goes on to say this doesn't mean a new variant is designed, is destined to arise in the UK in the coming weeks. Just the evolutionary pressures on the virus are making it more likely than before. So it's a, it's going to happen until you read the article when apparently it isn't going to happen. Uh, indeed. Okay, and uh, so this is uh, Steve, uh, James Gallagher, who's the uh, BBC journalist, simply failing to do any proper research into what's happening. Uh, but I think uh, probably people are well aware now the BBC not to be trusted as a reliable source of news. Um, right, David, uh, let's head up to Scotland for a second. And uh, well, we're going to begin with a little bit of video on which is an NHS advertisement on mass testing. So do you just want to introduce this briefly? Well, this is what we've been. This is what we've been told. This has been piped into living rooms across Scotland, um, and uh, it is, shall we say, of interesting scientific quality. Around one in three people with COVID nineteen don't show any symptoms, but can still spread it. We need you to take two tests every week, even if you're fully vaccinated and don't have symptoms to help reduce the risks of new COVID strains spreading. That's a work of art. <laughs> Isn't it just? So they, they, go in, they go in hard with the, with the myth of the asymptomatic spread, right? So this is something we've discussed at, at, at some length, that if you have, if we're talking about a respiratory illness, uh, in order to have enough uh, virus to be spreading it, uh, you will have symptoms. And the whole thing of asymptomatic spread being a driver of um, of, of the pandemic has been uh, a major government talking point from the get-go. And the scientific evidence uh, suggests that that is entirely false. So they repeat this myth. They then say, no matter whether you're vaxxed or not, so again, what difference does the vaccine make? Apparently nothing. Um, you're going to have to test yourself twice a week twice a week, presumably forever, uh, and, and provide that data um, to the government. So you're going to be generating from that a huge amount of false positives, as you can imagine, um, and that will generate more of the pandemic um, isolation and, um, and lockdown policies. And I loved the little graphic where we've got this, this graduated risk scale Right. This is from a binary test. A lateral flow test says you've got COVID or you don't have COVID. 
Uh, but but no, we've got this this graduated scale going from low risk to slightly higher risk and and moving around. It's all very scientific. It's all very precise. And and you're going to help us be be this precise because this is how good we at Public Health Scotland are. This is nonsense. Uh, so the whole thing, I, I was struck by the lack of scientific basis for every word that came out of uh, Public Health Scotland there. Um, which brings us on to uh, more Public Health Scotland. Ah, well, so if you have a problem with the believability of Public Health Scotland, you need some help. Who are you going to call, Mike? Who are you going to call? You're going to call Police Scotland. Who else are you going to call? Police Scotland and Public Health Scotland launches strategic collaboration to drive national improvements in health and well-being. Uh, five years on from the uh, named person uh, failure in the High Court, the government still hasn't managed to define well-being, but uh, Police Scotland and Public Health Scotland are going to combine to pr provide it. Um, so we have here a nice little uh, photograph of a socially distanced distance photo shoot outside Tully Allen Castle, Police Headquarters. Um, and uh, the, the report says the first joint approach of this kind in Scotland, founded on the basis of the two organisations' shared visions of improving safety and well-being of people, places and communities in the country, and creating a Scotland where everybody thrives. So Police Scotland are now interested in your health and your thriving. Senior leaders agreed to implement a collaboration framework, and the first meeting of the joint executives took place at Scottish Police College, College Tully Allen, on Tuesday the 20th of July. Um, so it goes on to say, uh, uh, Deputy Chief Constable Will Kerr is, is leading it for Police Scotland. Uh, the role of public health in policing featured highly on the agenda with inputs relating to the impact of mental health and well-being issues on the two organisations. Public health approaches to addressing societal issues through partnership working were also discussed. Uh, Public Health Scotland's Chief Executive Angela Leach said, quote, Together with Police Scotland, we are working to address the significant health challenges that Scotland faces. Our partnership framework has therefore been developed to turn our shared vision and purpose into tangible actions, uh, actions that will make a real difference to people's lives. I bet it will. Uh, our existing partnership work already demonstrates the power and potential of this joint public health approach. So there we go. Um, it's the power that they're after. And um, Police Scotland and Public Health Scotland are working closely together to improve our health and well-being. This is the Scottish model of government. There are no functional departments. Everything is one organisation. So your health is the business of the police. Um, your conduct is the business of the health authorities. It's all one. Uh, there can be only one. Uh, David, your report terrifying because I saw there at the end of the uh, last article on screen that the police are going to be carrying nasal sprays alongside their tasers. Uh, the ongoing pilot, police officers carrying uh, Naxalone nasal sprays to help people experiencing a suspected overdose and our work uh, to provide agencies and local communities with real-time data on suspected drug-related deaths and suspected suicides are examples of how we're having a greater impact on, on uh, population health and well-being. Now, I mean, th there is an element here where the, 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 there's some sympathy to be had with Police Scotland because the police are often asked to deal as a frontline service with issues that are failures in mental health provision. 
and and failures in drug rehabilitation provision, and the police get landed with it. So there's a I can see where the police are coming from here, but my concern is the the blurring of lines between what is policing and what is health, what is private, what is public, what is criminal. And what is a lifestyle choice? All of these lines are being blurred, and there's no protection, and there's no awareness. It would seem, it would seem, of of the potential pitfalls. That said, some radical changes to how uh, the police deal with, for example, someone who's on a negative spiral of drug abuse, homelessness, vagrancy, uh, or alcoholism, and then being picked up short time in jail, and then repeat. Right, that what you've actually got is a is a is a problem that's been treated as a policing problem that's in fact nothing of the sort. That's real, and I do have sympathy with that. I'm not cons- I'm not convinced that the one organisation superstate is in fact the way that that should be handled. Okay. Yes. Okay, David. Let's uh, move on then to uh, sister dying bill in Scotland. Okay. Um, so this is from Holyrood magazine. A new member's bill which would legalise assisted dying is to be raised in the Scottish Parliament. Now, this was last raised about 2015 and was voted down, but we're going again. A cross-party work- working group is bringing in legislation. It includes former Conservative leader Jackson Carlaw, as well as Green uh, co-leaders Patrick Harvey and Lorna Slater. Uh, They say, quote, the law does not work and should be replaced with a safe and compassionate new law that gives dying people the rights they need to have a good death. It is incumbent on us to provide this solution. So there we go. We're going to have good deaths in Scotland and uh, the Green Party and the Conservative Party are going to provide this. Uh, Scottish Labour's Pam Duncan a party spokeswoman uh, for social justice and social security warned the plans could be dangerous for disabled people. Uh, she's a wheelchair user and she said she's deeply worried about the bill. Uh, disabled people do not yet enjoy a right to live equally. I'd far rather with the right to live enshrined in law long before we have the right to die. This seems a fair point. Um, Michael Veach, Parliamentary Officer for Care for Scotland, said the law will not just affect a small number of individuals who might choose to access assisted suicide. It will affect every person living with a terminal illness, fundamentally alter the doctor-patient relationship, devalue disabled people's lives and undermine wide efforts to prevent suicide. This seems to me to be an excellent summary of the problems. Uh, He claimed there would be no adequate safeguards um, and, and said that a terminal prognosis is fraught with uncertainty. He continued, vulnerable patients can be coerced and the experience of other jurisdictions shows that an incremental expansion of the law is inevitable. Quote, sadly, this legislation comes after a renewed campaign driven by hyperbole, not by evidence and information. We hope the parliamentarians will be guided by the evidence in the forthcoming debate and opt to hold, uphold the current um, provisions. Now, um, this uh, set me off looking for some more information on this from other countries. Uh, the Psychiatric Times here have a piece, First Do No Harm, New Canadian Law Allows Assisted Suicide for pa- Patients with Psychiatric Disorders. Uh, Canada just passed a law that radically changes the boundary between acceptable and unacceptable medical practice and has opened the path to euthanasia for patients with psychiatric illness who find the conditions unbearable. And it then outlines how it got there, and it's very worrying. So it started off with a 2016 uh, Bill C-14 permitting medical euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide, uh, the Medical Aid in Dying or MAID Act. Um, 
And by uh, 2020, 13,000 individuals had been uh, euthanized as a result of the bill. To be eligible, the patient's natural death must be predicted to be reasonably foreseeable. Um, that requirement was uniquely Canadian and was subsequently removed. So Psychiatric Times con continues. Uh, several countries allow psychiatric patients who are suicidal to voluntarily receive death by legal, lethal injection or self-administered prescription for, legal uh, for lethal medication from physicians. And uh, it then describes how this is happening in the Benelux countries. Um, it, it, the Psychiatric Times then continues that the Quebec uh, Superior Court a challenge constitutionally of the reasonably foreseeable restriction. As a result, a new federal bill was introduced to extend euthanasia uh, to uh, essentially without that previous restriction. The new initiative, Bill C-7, follows the Benelux model, removes the prior exclusion of those with um, non-terminal chronic illnesses, and permits euthanasia for those with psychological or physical suffering that is deemed intolerable and untreatable. Um, and then this has led to um, es essentially all, all restrictions being removed. Um, and uh, commenting on this, uh, the American Medical Association uh, said that the made practices are fundamentally incompatible with the physician's role as a healer. And experts in Canadian law and medicine wrote C7 C7 bill will allow physicians to end the life of people with disabilities or chronic illnesses at their request and will require the system to ensure that it happens even where physicians are convinced based on their expert knowledge that medicine offers options and even when the patient may have years or decades to live with a good quality of life if other options have been explored and tried first. So you see how it's evolved into something quite different. Um, uh, 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 Karen Deep uh, Sonu Gain, MD, past president of the Canadian Psychiatric Association and a fierce critic of MAID, uh, MAID's expansion to psychiatric patients, noted that less privileged patients have much harder time accessing medical care in general, especially psychiatric treatment. And he quoted a little poem to explain the problem, uh, which reads, so thank you, Canada powers that be, for ensuring that our smooth passings will reflect the privilege of our life's trappings. I will soon be free without anxiety, knowing that, that with ease I can choose the time of my going, and any poor souls sacrificed on this altar of my choice, my voice, there will be no way of knowing. So I thought that summed it up very well. And, and then... To go to the Irish well, Times. Hold on, hold on. Here, David, 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 David. Sorry, we're, we're, we're sorry. massively, massively running out of time. So we, we'll just move straight on then to the final uh, slide in this segment because we'll cover the, the Irish Times okay. some other time. But uh, uh, oh, okay. So th this is uh, a, a YouTube. This is caring corrupted. The killing of nurses. The killing of nurses by the Third Reich. No, the killing no, nurses, the killing nurses the of the Third Reich. Um, sorry. Yeah, so this, this is an award-winning documentary. It's available on YouTube. It's well worth watching. It's got a warning for our present um, uh, society, and it, it describes exactly how nurses uh, were um, enticed into co committing ultimately heinous acts in the Third Reich. Um, and it goes into all of the propaganda, dehumanization of people and reasons given why this was in fact the, a, a good thing to do. Um, it's, well worth a, it's well worth a watch.
Okay, brilliant. Thank you. Right, now let's just uh, quickly move on to this. Uh, this is uh, another mail headline. It says the Britcoin revolution, Rishi Sunak plans to introduce official digital currency to rival cash in biggest upheaval in the monetary system for centuries. Uh, and they're saying cash in people's pockets would be superseded by a new Bitcoin digital currency and a plan being pushed by Chancellor Rishi Sunak in what Treasury insiders say would be the biggest upheaval in the monetary system for centuries. The Bank of England would establish a direct digital equivalent to physical money and take control of it in the same way as sterling. Its supporters in the Treasury say that it would allow the bank to give the economy a boost in times of financial crisis by paying the Bitcoins directly into people's bank accounts. Um, so here's uh, the main photograph on the uh, article, uh, which shows some Bitcoin, or at least the Bitcoin logo. And uh, it's supposed to make us feel comfortable with this because, of course, Bitcoin's been around for a number of years. Uh, and many of the people who might otherwise uh, oppose this type of uh, intervention from the government uh, are into Bitcoin. So that should make them feel uh, very comfortable. Let's just see a digital currencies where a digital currency where customers have accounts directly linked to the Bank of England would also make it far easier to issue so-called helicopter money where the funds where funds are injected into people's pockets by the government. This would prove a more effective way of stimulating the economy in times of crisis than quantitative easing is what the mail says. Fantastic stuff. It sounds fantastic. Of course, what they're talking about here is universal basic income, but that uh, uh, may not be quite so fantastic. But anyway, uh, I'll just make the point. I'm glad the mail is catching up with this. I'm not so excited about the way they're presenting it, but I want to reinforce the point that this is not a Rishi Sunak or a Treasury initiative. This is a Bank for International Settlements initiative. Um, this is from uh, June, a tweet by the Bank for International Settlements. Uh, central bank digital currencies offer in digital form the unique advantages of central bank money, uh, which are settlement finality, liquidity and integrity, uh, bolstering the central bank foundations of the payment system. And they were making the point that cash is uh, increasingly no longer in use and really we need to move on to something else. And they were also in the report uh, making the point uh, that there are two types of central bank digital currency, a wholesale central bank digital currency, which is only for banks. Uh, and a retail central bank digital currency, which is for the likes of you and me. Um, and uh, here's where they make that point. Uh, so we get access to it uh, instead of cash. Uh, and we've got to remember what Rishi Sunak uh, has been saying, uh, because of course, with respect to COP26 is coming up, we have to renew the UK's position as the world's preeminent financial sectors center. So we're going to lead the way on this. But equally, if you remember what... Uh, uh, the wonderful Mark Carney has been saying, uh, we will not get to net zero in a niche. It requires a whole economy transition. And that's what these central bank digital currencies are all about. So let's just remind ourselves what uh, the Bank for International Settlements was saying, uh, that a group of seven central banks together with the Bank for International Settlements has published a report identifying the foundational principles necessary for any publicly available central bank digital currencies to help central banks meet their public policy objectives. Um, so CDBCs are potentially a new form of digital central bank money. They're combined with the use of distributed ledger technology. So the question is then, is, but was Bitcoin a pilot for this? Was, this, was Bitcoin an effort to, to get this type of thing acceptable in the general public by, you know, making it seem alternative? Like. Yes, it, it seems like a nudge to me. Uh, and in part because cash is rapidly disappearing uh, in their jurisdiction. 
And just to make the point once again, this is part and parcel of the Build Back Better uh, Great Reset. And if anybody wants to understand how COVID has helped drive this forward, Ian Davis has a new article on the UK Column website. I absolutely recommend people read it. It's long, but you need to understand the principles in this. Uh, the not so great carbon reset. Uh, do read this and share it as widely as possible. And David, I'm very interested in your thoughts on central bank digital currencies and how they are really much better than quantitative easing. Yeah. Um, firstly, the Bank of England International Settlements uh, have been pretty pro um, Bitcoin for some time. Uh, some years ago, um, I found out that you could get Bitcoin from a cash dispenser on the railway platform just outside the BIS um, central office in Switzerland. Uh, I think that was a clue that they were really quite for it. Um, the mail's wrong, obviously, uh, about the largest change to uh, currency in 100 years. That was coming off uh, gold. Um, and having a, a, a basically a fiat um, paper printing standard. And, the, and that happened in 1971 when the gold window closed and the last link to gold was uh, severed. And that's when uh, we started to see the increasing disparity between rich and poor. Uh, that's happened almost exactly the same time. Uh, and Rishi, Rishi wants to have uh, Britain return to the, being the preeminent center, uh, preeminent financial center in the world. That stopped with the First World War, Rishi. So we've got a wee bit of uh, a wee bit of uh, improvement to do if we're going to get back there. Um, we 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 did rule the waves. We no longer did. We had a worldwide empire. We no longer do. Um, and we were obviously on the gold standard, and we no longer are. It was a, it was based on sound money. Um, you might try it. Uh, I don't think so. I don't think he will. But anyway, uh, where does that take us? Defense? Well, if, because... if, yeah, if you're building a fantastic financial empire, might you want to be able to defend it. But uh, we're going to make the statement which nobody else is going to make, and it's the backbone of the Royal Navy is broken. There's no doubt about this at all. Uh, so let's come on to uh, this fantastic ship, the Type 45 uh, destroyer. So this is the Royal Navy's own website commenting. The Type 45 destroyer is more than just a ship. The headline there, a warship for the 21st century. It's a symbol of Britain's eminent place on the world stage and a powerful deterrent to those who would do us harm. It's the embodiment of the Royal Navy's commitment to defending the fleet, upholding the law and protecting our economy and way of life. So you don't want to mess around on the streets because uh, they're going to send a Type 45. Well, maybe not, as we shall see. Um, six, we've got apparently six Type 45 destroyers. They're amongst the most advanced warships ever built. They're suited to a huge range of tasks, from hunting down pirates to defending the fleet from air attack, providing humanitarian aid, upholding the law, of course, and they've got a ferocious Sea Viper missile, which can knock down moving targets out of the sky up to 70 miles away. And there's the statement, Type 45 destroyers are the backbone of the Royal Navy. Um, well, why is the backbone broken? Well, here we are, we come to Defence News, uh, where the real headline comes out. Most of the Royal Navy's destroyers are unavailable for deployment. Most means five out of the six ships we have. Uh, oh. So we no longer have an air defence capability, so the Royal Navy's backbone is indeed broken. 
Uh, Tobias Elwood, chair of the Defence Select Committee, said this, it's an operational concern. HMS Defender is now our only currently operating Type 45. If that ship experiences propulsion problems, which we've seen across the Type 45 family, then the carrier strike group will be forced to lean on a NATO ally to ensure we have destroyer protection. Is that not, is that not exactly what's being done? Uh, that was the plan in the first place, yes. uh, Mike. Um, but I'm going to say he's a bit confused here because uh, he's mixing the need for air defence with the fact that this ship happens to be designated as a destroyer. Uh, he goes on to say the lack of, well, he doesn't say lack of, 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 he says availability, the lack of availability of the Type 45 illustrated that Britain needed a bigger navy. Now, this confused me because he's, he's suggesting we need more of these ships which don't work. So he's confused over fit for purpose and size. That's why he's looking a little bit surprised there. But that's the reality of the situation, uh, that the Royal Navy at the moment cannot provide air defence for the carrier properly. And Tobias Elwood appears to be totally confused that this actually means disaster for the Royal Navy, not it isn't big enough. So the procurement issues, the design issues, the purchasing the uh, suitability of the equipment, all shown to be wanting and defective. David. In the 1930s, um, the forward planning for the fleet, which, which was perfectly sensible and was vastly underfunded and never actually happened in, in full, was based on an availability of 75%. 25% of, for example, the cruiser force would be under refit uh, or repair at any given time. Uh, or, or could be. So that would be one or maybe two of the Type 45s would be in uh, in repair or refit and four or five would be available. Um, since the 1930s, mechanical equipment has, of course, become much more reliable, not much less reliable. So you would have thought that we could do better than that. So five out of six, not one out of six, would be a reasonable aiming point, surely. Yes. Well, there's something uh, has gone badly wrong. It's been deliberate, in my opinion. The capability of the mil military has been collapsed in order to drive EU Defence uh, Union. That was the uh, plan. And there's a lot more to be said on that. But the good news is one of our biggest fans, uh, Mariana Spring, is uh, launching a book. And uh, uh, there's been a, a bid, an auction, uh, for uh, which has been won by Atlantic Books. I got there in the end. Uh, so she's writing a book which is Notes from, uh, from the Disinformation Wars. Uh, that's uh, what she's writing. So Mariana, very, very pleased. I'm going to label this as fake news, but it wasn't from her own website, uh, from her own Twitter page, of course. Um, and we're ending uh, on some spectacular news. Uh, apparently this originated with the Telegraph and then it filtered out through the rest of the media cartel uh, and ended up in Plymouth Live. Uh, government ministers fear that farting could spread COVID, says the headline. Now, I'm not sure that we're allowed to use that word on, uh, on UK called news, but it's in the headline. I can't really change it. Uh, and uh, it's saying, it has been reported that some UK government ministers have privately expressed concerns that flatulence could spread the disease, it has been claimed. The Telegraph quotes an unnamed minister expressing the fears, uh, pointing to an evidence which suggests that the coronavirus could be spread when an infected person breaks wind in a confined space, such as a toilet, it's already been revealed that the virus can present in fecal matter, 
uh, with tests proving this to be the case. However, the science and whether farting could spread the coronavirus is not definitive. Uh, one minister who wasn't named told the Telegraph that they had read credible looking stuff on it from other countries. Uh, and there had been evidence of a genomically linked tracing connection between two individuals from a lavatory cubicle in Australia. So, uh, David, um, I'm frankly finding it difficult to hold it together reading that out. So could you maybe take over at this point? This is exactly what I've been warning you about for about nine months, Mike. This is the scariest variant of them all. Never mind the Delta variant, the Indian variant. Toilet COVID. Yeah. Toilet COVID knows when you're alone. Toilet uh, COVID gets you when you're most vulnerable. Toilet COVID's coming. I'll just add to that, David, that, of course, uh, Plymouth um, are susceptible to flooding in the uh, central city area. And we've had a lot of other floods around the country in urban areas. When those floods occur, sewage is uh, brought to the surface. So that must represent, under this rule, a massive risk. If uh, flatulence is a problem, then flooding and raw sewage in Britain streets must now be a massive problem. Uh, but neither Southwest Water or any of the other water authorities or indeed the government want to talk about that problem. But we're left with this is the best that Plymouth Live can do. Uh, just we're not going to blame Plymouth Live uniquely. This began with the Telegraph and it spread out from there right across the media cartel. So, so we've got to put the blame where it deserved. Unless it was an embedded BBC democracy reporter, Mike. That's uh, always possible. Okay. Anyway, we'll be back in a few minutes on the uh, UK column live stream with some extra and otherwise uh, 1 p.m. Oh, oh, yes. Well, good point. Look, we just want to say thank you very much to the person uh, who sent us through um, some um, some slate uh, coasters with UK column on them and also some other bits and pieces. Thank you very much for that. Yeah, it was very nice. So thank you. Okay, we'll be back in a few minutes. And aside from that, we'll be back on Wednesday. Yes. See you then. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.